Today, I want to continue with the second part in my two-part series on anger and strong emotions by way of the Loving Kindness Sutra. So as a reminder, here's what the second part of the Loving Kindness Sutra says um, and was the focus of my talk last week, right? Wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great and the mighty, medium, short and small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. There's no asterisk at the end of that all beings. It's everyone. Um, and it's such a wonderful expression of the Bodhisattva's vows, the way in which we might move in and through the world in our day-to-day -day lives. But as I've said, it's not the easiest way to move through the world because sometimes things get in the way. And one thing that sometimes gets in the way is anger or strong emotions generally. So it's important for us to work with our anger, to learn to work with our anger, because the teachings don't ask us to get rid of anything, and they don't ask us to exclude anything from our lives, but encourage us and invite us to find ways to roll it into our practice, bring it to the cushion, sit with it, see what's really going on underneath. Is it fear? Is it something else? But don't push it away. Don't try and go around or underneath it. But this can be challenging. So this morning I thought I would say some things about the third of the six paramitas, or the perfections of character, as we call them. The Sanskrit term for this third paramita is kasanti paramita which we can translate as the perfection of forbearance or the perfection of patience or the perfection of tolerance. None of these translations we might say is perfect, uh, but as far as I'm concerned, you really can't have a perfect translation from one language to another. You're always gonna lose something when moving from one language to another. Because languages are not just languages. They're not self-contained, isolated things, unaffected by the time and the place and the culture and the context in which they exist. And all of you, I suspect, are perfectly aware of this. Do you remember hearing the latest slang when you were in high school and coming home to your parents or when you were visiting family using it and seeing the expression of utter confusion on their face? Or if you have kids, Buddha help you, do you remember your own bewilderment at some of the things that your kids would come home and say? I work along, among a lot of young people um, and I feel lost most of the time. It's a sign that I'm getting old, which is shocking to me. 
Um, I hear them talk about how they came to slay the day um, and how they're bussin' bussin' at the seams, and I don't know what any of this means. I just sort of smile and nod, like... <laughs> Kasanti means unaffected by, able to bear or able to withstand. And there's something about how these translations meet me that causes me to have a look of suspicion on my face. Maybe turn my head slightly to the right or to the left, like, hmm. I'm not suspicious that these are in fact appropriate translations of the Sanskrit term. I trust the scholars who know these sorts of things, but I wonder if they're appropriate translations for us. Sometimes Roshi and I offer the reminder that the teachings and the practice doesn't ask us to be stone Buddhas, but encourages us to be what we sometimes call flesh and blood Buddhas. We're living, breathing things with lots of emotions, lots of challenges, minds that race this way and that. So when I hear things like able to bear and able to withstand, what sometimes comes to my mind is an image of a stone, something immovable, something almost or entirely dead and lifeless. And it can suggest that something along the lines of endurance is at the center of practice. And the ability or the capacity to just keep pushing forward in the face of difficulty supported by a kind of stubbornness in your own willpower. That's a way you can be in the world. And some people are that way. I used to be that way and I still am at times. But that's not our way of practice. So an alternative to understanding Kasanti as supported by a sort of stubbornness and willpower is thinking about a constancy of purpose. Last week I said some things about vow, about the Bodhisattva's vow to save or serve, free or awaken with all beings. And it's that from which this forbearance or this patience or this tolerance can arise a well-tempered vow, broadened and deepened from a continual recommitment in the face of obstacles and difficulties that you meet with, ones that are small and great, visible and invisible, near and far. And what supports all of this is a kind of joyful effort so that we can, in our day-to-day -day lives, walk through the world with a gentle and peaceful heart, meeting all beings with an open hand, ready to offer our assistance if it's needed. So how does this happen? This tempering of vow, this cultivation of patience, which supports working with our anger and other strong emotions? The shortest possible answer is in many ways, 84,000 ways to be precise. And that's not surprising because I hear there are 72 ways in which we can be disturbed. And you might, from your own experience, think only 72? Maybe just one of my kids gives me 72, but the other one, let me tell you. 
but I thought I would just share a few that are connected by a common thread. What unites these two methods or techniques, if you will, is shifting our perspective on actions and behaviors that because of our karmic conditioning tend to contribute to the presence of anger and frustration and irritation and annoyance in our lives. So today is the last day of the Denkoi Sashin at Jokoji Zen Center out in California. That's where Mato is and has been teaching for the last week. And Mato decided that for that week, she would offer Dharma talks on the Vimalakirti Sutra, a classic Mahayana Sutra that she and I explored earlier this year together. Um, and I talked a little bit about during Vesak in the spring. There's a passage at the end of the sutra's sixth chapter that I thought I would share with you this morning. Just prior to this passage, Shariputra asks Mahakasyapa a question. These are two disciples of the Buddha. He asks him a question about inconceivable liberation. What is inconceivable liberation? Don't worry about it. It's inconceivable. But Mahakasyapa offers a response, and it concludes with the following statement. Indeed, what could the entire host of Maras ever do to one who is devoted to this inconceivable liberation? Maras. This is a name, a term, which with some of you might be familiar. Classically, Mara is the demon that assailed the Buddha underneath the Bodhi tree some 2,300, 2,400 years ago. Mara sought to prevent the Buddha's awakening by challenging him in all sorts of ways. Mara threw dancing girls at the Buddha to try and get him to stand up and break his meditation practice. Dancing boys, riches and jewels, fancy promises of fame and power and wealth, and when all else failed, Mara said, who are you to claim that you have the right to be enlightened? And Shakyamuni asked the earth to bear witness and touched the earth and the earth bore witness and you know the rest of the story. So Mara classically refers to this sort of demon, but more generally, we sometimes talk about Maras as forces that appear antagonistic to our awakening. So when Mahakasyapa questions what Maras could ever do to someone devoted to inconceivable liberation, he's questioning how someone could ever be obstructed on the path of practice. What possibly could stand in someone's way if that someone is devoted to awakening with all beings? Vimalakirti, this pesky individual, discerns a duality in Mahakasyapa's question and says the following in response. Reverend Mahakasyapa, the Maras who play the devil in the innumerable universes of the Ten Directions are all bodhisattvas. They're all great beings. 
dwelling in inconceivable liberation, who play this part, who play the devil, in order to develop living beings through their skill in liberative technique. Mahakasyapa, all these miserable beggars who come to the bodhisattvas of the innumerable universes in the ten directions and ask for a hand or a foot, an ear or a nose, some blood, muscles, bones, marrow, an eye, a torso, a head, a limb, a member, a throne, a kingdom, a country, a wife, a son, a daughter, a slave, a slave girl, a horse, an elephant, a chariot, a cart, gold, silver, jewels, pearls, conches, crystals, coral, barrel, treasures, food, elixirs, drink, and clothes. All these people are really bodhisattvas living in inconceivable liberation who through their skill wish to test and thus demonstrate the firmness and the high resolve of bodhisattvas. It's not possible without special allowance that an ordinary person could attack and deprive a bodhisattva. So just as a donkey could not muster an attack on a wild elephant, Reverend Mahakasyapa, one who is not himself a bodhisattva cannot harass a bodhisattva. makes perfect sense, right? If not, here's a little bit of help. I said a moment ago that we sometimes talk about Maras as forces that appear antagonistic to our awakening. The word appear is the important word here. What Vimalakirti offers us in this long passage I just read is the opportunity to consider these so-called demons these forces seemingly at odds with our aspiration to awaken with all beings as an essential part of that continual ongoing process. So how do we become more patient with the actions and behaviors of others that at times annoy and irritate us? By practicing patience with those very behaviors. It's not by napping on the couch with our dogs and cats, though we surely like it to be. And it's not by frolicking through fields of flowers on a sunny day, though wouldn't that be nice too. It's by meeting those situations that are frustrating and upsetting directly and working with them that we grow our ability to respond in a gentle and patient way. And one way of meeting those situations with more openness and receptivity invites us to view those people that we find frustrating and upsetting as enlightened and generous beings who are giving us just the practice we need to become the patient people that we would like to be, that we hope to be, that we aspire to be. They can't obstruct us, contrary to what it might seem, but not because we're firmly protected within some sort of bubble of inconceivable liberation. They can't obstruct us because they were never trying to do so in the first place. They're here to help us. And if anything's getting in the way, it's our own ego. It's at this point that I'm inclined to ask, how does this strike you, this bit of advice? Are you inclined to roll your eyes at it? To say, oh, come on. 
all these people who contribute to this frustration and difficulty in my life, they're really enlightened and generous beings offering me help? Get real, Taishin! After I wrote that, I was thinking about Sherry, who likes to talk sometimes about a muscular Buddhism, a Zen with muscles. So here's my response after I was thinking about Sherry. No, you get real. How sincere is your aspiration to save or serve, free or awaken with all beings? How genuine is your aspiration to move with and through the world in a kind and compassionate way? From where I'm sitting, when we begin or are within a great undertaking, we typically accept all the help that is offered to us, no matter in what form it appears. We don't pick and choose, we welcome everything. Because we're aware of the enormity of the task that we have undertaken. And what could be a greater undertaking than the one in which we find ourselves on this very day? But maybe that's too demanding a response at this point. I'm not sure that it is. I'm not sure that it's not. It's really not for me to decide. It's for you to decide. So let me offer something else. If viewing all people as generous beings trying to help you is just not on the menu for this Sunday. Shantideva was an 8th century Indian scholar, monk, and poet. And he wrote a long and highly regarded poem called The Way of the Bodhisattva. The sixth chapter of the poem has as its focus the perfection of patience, and sections 24 and 25 read, Never thinking, now I will be angry. People are impulsively caught up in anger. Irritation likewise comes, though never plans to be experienced. All defilements of whatever kind, the whole variety of evil deeds are brought about by circumstances. None is independent, none autonomous. We often talk about the interconnectedness of all things, that all things depend on all things, that all things inter-are, to use Thich Nhat Hanh's language. This truth of interdependence, or the truth of emptiness from a different point of view, is part of what Shantideva is reminding us in these lines. Nothing arises wholly from itself, because then it would already be there and it wouldn't need to come to be. And nothing arises from nothing. How could something come to be when there's nothing there from it to come to be from? But all things instead arise from prior causes and conditions, which shape that which arises into what it is, even if it's just here for a moment, the wind moving through the trees that we've been hearing this morning. 
If this truth serves as our starting point, we can ask from what causes and conditions does seemingly annoying and irritating and otherwise harmful behavior arise? Behavior that contributes to, but doesn't solely cause, the anger that sometimes arises within us. And part of that response will undoubtedly focus on past and present sufferings. As absurd as it might sound to say, I firmly believe that nobody wants anybody to suffer ever. Nobody does. But it just so happens that because we and others do suffer from time to time, we and others contribute to the continual arising, arising and presence of suffering in our individual and collective lives. Suffering begets suffering, I hear. And it's in part for this reason that we place so much emphasis in the teachings on getting clear, or at least getting clearer, about our own suffering. When we understand why we are currently suffering suffering or have suffered, say because our fears are getting the best of us, we can begin to address those fears and in turn reduce our tendency to act from that suffering in the future. And by directing our efforts in this way, we can reduce some how much suffering arises in the next moment, both for ourselves and for others. And I say all of this because it's not just true for ourselves, but for other people too. Importantly, it's the case for that meddlesome or troublesome or otherwise infuriating person that we interact with daily or weekly or monthly or however frequently or infrequently. This person's behavior that we judge, and whether correctly or not doesn't really matter, as contributing to the arising of anger within us doesn't appear from nothing at all. And it doesn't just show up as it is. It arises from prior causes and conditions, and what I'm hoping to get across this morning is that it arises from their own suffering. That person that you might not be able to stand is suffering too, and their suffering has a way of spilling out beyond them. You can think of a bucket that's just too full of water, and they're walking around with it, and some of it kind of splashes on you from time to time. And the same is true for you, too, by the way. You've got a bucket that sometimes is pretty full, and you're spilling it onto other people. And when you can see this, and I mean see it not with the eyes of the intellect, this isn't about figuring it out using your brain, but with the eyes of practice, when you understand this with your whole body, with the skin, muscles, bones, and sinews, it becomes easier, not instantly and not automatically, but it does become easier to respond with compassion and kindness and patience. But seeing the suffering in others, really seeing their suffering, requires shifting your orientation in the world a little bit. There's a strong tendency to orient ourselves toward ourselves. We're encouraged to put ourselves first, 
to consider ourselves first and to often do this to the outright exclusion of other people. So here's a fun exercise. Notice how often you, over the course of, say, an hour, you could do this for a day if you can keep track that long, I can't, use the words I, me, and mine. And I say this not because I think the words should never be used, but do we need to use them as often as we do? How often is our use of them appropriate? How often is it questionable? My late grandmother would often leave messages on the answering machine or in the voicemail box that began with, Hi, it's me. Who? Me? Who is me, Grandma? And often people talk about my dentist or my chiropractor or my teacher. Is this always appropriate? Do you own the dentist or the chiropractor? Do you own your teacher? Are they your property? Are you in possession of them and in control of them? What we mean to say, I think, is something along the lines of the dentist that I happen to visit for routine cleanings and the occasional filling. But your dentist? You might write this off as just a convenient shorthand. And if I'm feeling sassy, I might say you're being a little sloppy with your speech. But what I'm suggesting is that this tendency, though subtle, to frame things that we find ourselves in relations with as our own, as our property or possession, is one of the many ways in which we tend to orient ourselves and being in the world towards only ourselves. Everything is me. Everything is mine. I, 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 I. And we do this a lot of the time without being aware of it. It just happens. And that's okay. It really is okay. Because when you notice it happening, as it inevitably will, you can just smile and you can keep practicing. Perhaps that's all I really need to say on this subject of working with anger and other strong emotions. I can give you long passages from the sutras and explain them. I can offer personal stories from my nearby and distant life. Maybe that's helpful. I really don't know. It's for you to decide, not me. But whatever you decide, I offer you the encouragement to just keep smiling and to just keep practicing. Thank you.